Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are, you are listening to The Shift. This is the August 21st, 2017 edition. If you like what you're hearing, please think about becoming a patron. That's patreon.com backslash The Shift. Uh, if you want to find out more, go to my Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty. Or take a look at my archives at www.theshiftnow.com. Today is the 10th episode of The Shift. My guest on the program today is Joe Atwill, author of the controversial book, Caesar's Messiah. In this work, Atwill compares and contrasts the books of the Gospel and the New Testament with another well-known work of antiquity entitled The War Against the Jews by the famous historian of the time, Josephus. Utilizing a deep understanding of the Roman and Jewish literature of the period, Joe Atwill is able to point is able to posit the theory that the Gospels, rather than depicting an accurate history of the story of the true Messiah, is in actuality a satirical allegory intentionally inflicted upon the Jewish people at the time as a form of Roman propaganda, with the specific purpose of tricking them into accepting the Roman Caesar Titus Flavius as their one true Lord and Savior. Though the thesis seems incredible, Caesar's Messiah comes replete with example after example from primary source material that renders this conclusion difficult to dispute. Atwell has gone on to work with blogger and podcaster Jan Irvin at GnosticMedia.com, co-writing articles such as The Manufacturing of a Deadhead and Gregory Batesman and the Counterculture, theorizing that the elite class continues to engage in this type of social engineering disseminated by Roman emperors so many thousands of years ago. Find out more at CaesarsMessiah.com. Joe Atwell, welcome to the program, and thanks for helping to make the shift. Hey, thanks for having me, Doug. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what a controversial topic, but what uh, I think for me, actually, a great a great part of making the shift, because coming to the knowledge that this type of patriarchal religion, uh, I mean, for me, for a long time, I've had the suspicion that it is just a type of propaganda that basically trains people to accept uh, authority, uh, you know, government authority figures in their lives doing what they're told. It's kind of a maybe a tool of empire, if you will. Can you talk about just the general theory of, you know, patriarchal religion, how you started thinking about getting into this? What made you want to look at the Gospels and the New Testament in this way? <clears throat> I uh, grew up in Japan. My family was one of the first non-military families in the country after the war. Um, there was nowhere for me to go to school except for a place called St. Mary's Military Academy. Uh, it was run by and organized by what's called the Christian Brothers. Um, my immediate uh, teachers were Jesuits in the course of the years, and um, they were very interested in training people in uh, basically having knowledge of the Gospels. So um, my whole early childhood was spent almost every day studying the Gospels. And later in life, I fell away. I wasn't really interested in religion. It wasn't some kind of uh, denunciation of Catholicism. It was just I, I just sort of lost interest in it um, as, as a faith. But I always kept kind of the intellectual curiosity about uh, Jesus and, and sort of the history of that era because I'd had so much experience in it as a kid. And later in life, um, there was this controversy that swirled around the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, mm -hmm. These were these ancient documents that had been discovered, uh, you know, at Qumran, um, and they were from the general era of uh, Jesus's ministry. Um, but they described a completely different 
uh, kind of Messiah, one that was a warrior. And this really uh, piqued my curiosity. I, I really was not familiar with the Jewish war, um, and I certainly wasn't familiar or, and had never been taught about other Messianic movements of this era, particularly one that may have been militaristic. And it just occurred to me that uh, these two movements um, just seemed unlikely to have sprung from the same region at the same time. So I began to study the scrolls and, um, you know, uh, logical to uh, the Torah, the Messiah that they described was a military leader. Um, and their relationship to Rome would have been basically one of a, of a colony in opposition to uh, the colonizer. So there was uh, enmity toward Rome that, and to all foreigners that was expressed inside the religious literature that the scrolls uh, presented. And so then the gospel seemed very suspicious to me. I mean, how did this come about, this, this, this uh, organization? And I realized that I really didn't understand the history of the Arawell. So I started to read the only um, historian of the first century of, of Judea, and that's Flavius Josephus. Um, and when I went through his history, trying to have just a more informed opinion about um, uh, the first century religious life in Judea, um, I started no noticing really oddball parallels, um, sort of seeming connections or, or typology, you know, kind of relationships between events that Josephus was describing and the stories I remembered being taught as a, as a boy. And so that then just became a focus. I tried to understand why there was this relationship between the two works. And then one day <clears throat> it just occurred to me that um, everything was occurring in the same sequence. And so at that point, I realized that I wasn't, you know, just seeing um, some, you know, flavoring that that ended up, you know, and as part of the author's uh, perspective in the Gospels, it was much deeper. And so then I just started studying that that position. And uh, I realized basically that that Jesus was um, was created out of this military um, campaign uh, that this uh set or family of Roman Caesars had uh, conducted in Judea. And that basically, you know, the, the way you can understand the Gospels with, is with the, uh, the premise that the uh, victors write history, um, and with the Gospels, they simply wrote it as a prophecy of their military victories. So everything that Jesus um, describes is a military victory of this, uh, the, this Flavian Caesar family. Um, but then beyond that, they even wired all of the little details of his life into events from um, the, the military campaign so that when you lay the two works side by side, and this is just the, the um, sort of different quality of evidence that I bring to an understanding of the Gospels, is that when you just roll out the Gospels as a, in a sequence, just the, the relationships, one, at, one event after another, as the authors described them in the ministry of Jesus, and then do the same thing to the military campaign that uh, Josephus described, then you can see that, um, you know, that the basic core events that, that are non, sort of, they're not controversial, things like um, Jesus will predict the crushing of the Galileans' towns, and this is a historical event, this actually occurs in the war. Mm -hmm. Jesus predicts that the city of Jerusalem will be encircled, and again, this is a historical event, Josephus records it, 
Jesus predicts the temple will be raised, and again, historical event. Uh, Jesus predicts the abomination of desolation that Daniel prophesies will come to pass, and Josephus records this. So when you look at the these these kind of milestone historical events, which there's not any controversy about, you can see they're occurring in the same sequence, both both in the you know in in, uh, in the two uh, ministries, the Titus Flavius, the military leader, and of Jesus Christ, the character in the Gospels. And then when you start to start actually detail sequencing, where you take smaller events and try to place them in the same order, you can see that um, you know the both both stories are really basically representation of the same story. It's just the the one in the Gospels is written as a as a prophecy, um, both a direct prophecy, or Jesus will simply have a behavior or make a statement about something which will be related to an event that uh, Josephus recorded at that mm-hmm. point in the military campaign. Uh, I hope that's not complicated, but that's that's the uh, the general process I went through and uh, and what the theory is. Sure. I mean, it is crazy because as you're reading the book, Caesar's Messiah, you realize that it's it's just it becomes too much to be coincidental. You know, um, event after event from yeah. both of the works, you're quoting the primary sources and it's like, huh, you know, wow. I mean, that he Josephus is really talking about this specific event. It's suddenly and it's in the New Testament and there it's easy to do the comparison and contrast. Can you tell us? A little bit about Josephus himself and who he was and what his relationship was with the uh, the emperor's court, the, the Caesar's court, how he because he as a Jewish person himself knew all kinds of I mean, a very advanced Jewish, almost a Jewish prophet. I think he's been described and then began working with the Roman court. Um, just talk about his history and how he ended up with the kind sure, of work he was I mean, doing. he's one of the most uh, important uh, historians in Western civilization. I mean, he's the one who creates all of the context that we understand the Gospels with. Um, but he's an extremely bizarre individual. Um, as he purports, uh, he starts out in life as a, an extremely um, religious Jew. Um, he claims that at one time or another in his life, he was a member of all three of the major sects of Judaism in this era, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Um, he claims to be from the royal family, the Hasmonean uh, priest family that uh, was, you know, the, running the Maccabean king, kingdom at this time. Um, but he also is a cosmopolitan. He um, he knows, uh, for example, the wife of Nero. He goes to Rome and he's received there. So he he has two feet, well, foot in each world. One in, in it's kind of this uh, zealot. Jewish world and the other in this kind of cosmopolitan international world uh, that that Rome dominates. Um, The Jewish war, which was a rebellion, a messianic rebellion um, against Rome, in other words, what really propelled it into existence was the belief in the coming of a messiah. Um, This rebellion broke out in 66 CE, and according to Josephus, he was given command over the military campaign um, that they waged against Rome in Galilee. So he says that he was basically the general of the uh, Messianic army in Galilee. Um, he was captured by the Flavians. Um, and at this time, they were the, the Flavian family had not seized the throne, um, but Josephus basically went to Vespasian, who was the uh, father of the two sons, who was the first of the Flavian Caesars, 
And um, Josephus said, you know, you're going to become Caesar. I can see it. I'm a prophet. Um, they didn't believe Josephus. However, this came to pass. Wow. So they then said, well, this guy is a prophet. He's useful. Um, they brought him into the fold. He became basically a turncoat. Mm-hmm. He assisted uh, Rome against the Jewish messianic movement. Um, and then following the war, they brought him back to Rome, uh, got him a wife, gave him a townhouse in the emperor's palace, and uh, asked him to write the official version of the war. And so this then um, became what's known to history as War of the Jews. Um, and uh, it has always, that book has always been associated with the uh, um, sort of the origins of Christianity, uh, because um, the prophecies that Jesus makes about the future um, were understood as having been correct and having come to pass uh, because Josephus recorded them. In mm-hmm. other words, and, and so that at the, at the kind of the beginning of the Christian religion, um, you have copies of the New Testament that actually contain the works of Josephus because it was just seen as kind of the same um, intellectual understanding that Jesus makes, that the prophet, the Son of God, makes the predictions. The historian Josephus recorded the fact, proving that Jesus was divine. So that was the, the, that was the general understanding. Uh, Christian theology had this uh, school called the Preterites, which was basically this understanding that uh, Jesus made predictions and they all came to pass in the Roman Jewish War. And Josephus was the historian that recorded all those events. So Josephus has always been wired into Christianity. Um, my work just shows that it was just a, quite a bit deeper than anyone had uh, imagined. Mm-hmm. And Josephus had this concept, I think, that the God of the Jews came to favor the Romans, right? Yeah. Is there? And yeah. and so he, I mean, there is evidence that he was actually intentionally attempting to shift this kind of Father God, this this uh, this um, monotheistic God into the into the Roman situation. And there are other, well, I mean, just explain, I think, to the audience a little bit how. The Roman Caesars would call themselves God, and they had this practice of um, trying to assimilate. If they conquered another culture, they would always assimilate their their gods. And then at a certain point in time, they had hundreds of gods that they had assimilated. And it, I, to me, it was a logical conclusion to come to uh, that Josephus maybe was like, well, hey, can can could we construct one of these religions? Because there were every every Roman emperor had a religion and a cult constructed around them. So they had experience with creating religions like this, that maybe they could contemplate creating a religion with a monotheistic God that could ultimately be the Roman unification church that could, that could unify the entire empire under one new God, this Jewish God that they assimilated into the empire through, you know, the philosophy of Josephus. Yeah. Um, the um, the Caesars would adopt the um, identities of the local gods of the areas that they conquered. Um, when Joseph, excuse me, when Vespasian was considering becoming Caesar, um, he went into the Temple of Seraphis. He was in Alexandria, which is in Egypt at this time, and you know there was a word that Nero had died, and he was supposedly questioning about whether or not he should try to make a play for the throne. So he goes into the temple of Ther- Seraphis, 
And he comes out and he says, you know what? <clears throat> I am Seraphis. <laughs> he says, I am the God. Mm -hmm. And then he works a couple of miracles um, just to prove it. So this was just routine propaganda. I mean, if you look at the pharaohs becoming right. you know, the man-god, um, right. the, the, the oligarchs had at, at this point in human development um, this technique about the adoption of the identity of a god, which would basically make them um, easier to obey. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, the idea that it would it was sort of not to be expected for Rome to try to take um, basically the mantle of the human divinity that represents uh, the Jews to the supreme being is is basically silly. In other words, they, they of course, they would have looked at this and tried to have studied it and see what they could do to basically manipulate the religion. Rome had been trying to manipulate the Jewish religion since um, they had conquered it. Uh, with Pompeii, I think 166 BCE. So they'd had this long history of trying to, uh, no, no, oh, they had this long history of trying to basically control the religion. Mm -hmm. And um, they were, the Flavians um, basically were aligned with the premier Jewish intellectual family uh, at that time, which was the Alexanders. Uh, people are aware of Philo. He's the famous philosopher and Jewish theologian. Um, he was the best-known author. Well, um, his um, uh, Philo's brother was um, uh, the father of uh, Tiberius Alexander. And Tiberius Alexander, when uh, his father died, became the richest individual in the world, um, because his father was the albark or the tax collector of the area of, of Egypt. He was Rome's tax collector. Mm -hmm. So um, Tiberius uh, was Jewish, um, had an intellectual background in Judaism. I mean, his uncle was the most famous theologian of the era. Um, but he was completely aligned with Rome's interests because the family generated their enormous wealth through Roman taxation. And they hated the Messianic movement because this was just a way they would lose money as they would see it. So, right. <laughs> when, so when the war broke out, um, uh, Tiberius then came over to the Flavians and worked as their premier general. When, when Vespasian went to Rome, he left uh, his son Titus in charge of the army and placed Tiberius basically as the head general under Titus. So, so this family was completely aligned. Now, this is where... Um, Rome's understanding, excuse me, the Flavians' understanding of Judaism would have come from, is they had, um, you know, highly developed Jewish intellectuals who were financially entwined with Rome um, that were on their particular payroll. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was where sort of this understanding, this deep understanding of, uh, of Jewish scripture came from that ends up in the Gospels. This would have been the group that... Um, would have helped the, the Flavians in, in the production of the literature. And the other family they were aligned with was the Herods. Uh, the Herods were the tax collectors of the area around Judea. Uh, these three families are thick as thieves. The Herods, the Alexanders, and the Flavians, they intermarry. Um, they, they, are, they appear as a group at the same uh, imperial courts. They know each other very well, and um, they are all working together militarily against the Messianic movement. Mm -hmm. So these three families then, after the war, they would have realized that, look, um, 
you know, we've defeated the, the Messianic movement, but this was just a battle. Obviously, there's going to be, you know, more rebellions. When, when, the, when the rebellion broke out in 66, uh, this was simply one of a series of rebellions that started in the year one and actually didn't conclude until the year 135. So it was over 135 years of rebellions against the Roman Empire. And, and the, the Roman Jewish war, where the temple is raised, was simply right in the middle of it. So the Flavians would have been looking for some uh, way to basically uh, tone down the Messianic movement um, so it wouldn't rebel against the empire. And this was kind of the basis for, you know, the character Jesus Christ. He's sort of a, you know, a metrosexual um, Jewish messiah. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he's cosmopolitan, he's pro-Roman, he's saying, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He's quasi-pacifist. Um, and, and he's very um, critical of, uh, you know, Jews when they're just too fundamentally religious, you know, and they don't see the broader perspective. Mm -hmm. So he's just this perfect messianic character to try to calm down the messianic rebellions against Rome. Um, it didn't work very well. Um, you know, I mean, I think that Rome was taking a really long view with the religion. Uh, it certainly didn't stem the flow of rebellions that uh, the Jews created against Rome. Um, but the Christian religion, um, you know, was, was more than just a way to calm the Jewish people. Um, Flavius Constantine, um, who is, has the same name as the, as the creators of Christianity and, you know, has a lot of archaeological linkages to them, um, he makes it the state religion in, you know, 303, 305. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, we need this, this state religion. But uh, whereas Constantine gets a lot of accolades because they say that he took civilization from paganism into Christianity, as though that is, um, you know, some kind of worthwhile move. But right. <laughs> you know, he, he is he's given that accolade. But the fact is, People forget to that he actually created another system. It wasn't just making Christianity the state religion. He also created what's called the feudal system. Hmm. He developed what what we know of as the serfs, um, you know, the slave class. And when you look at it from that perspective, you can see that Christianity was just a a mind control operation. You know, the idea is is that you know if Caesar tells you to give up your children and your food that you've created. Uh, to the magistrate, people might rebel. But when the individual is a priest who has a religious basis for it, they're just easier to control. Mm -hmm. And so Constantine created the feudal system, and then he used Christianity basically as just the mind control of religion to, so that people would have a, a less kind of intellectual capacity to rebel. And it worked terrific. I mean, uh, the system stayed intact for almost 1,500 years. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of uncovered the puzzle? Because you've got to go back into it, and and you have to understand these techniques. You talk about um, typology. That'd be great to yeah. define for the audience. Um, okay. Intertextuality, reading the, the texts you know, together at the same time, and the comparison and the contrast. That right, parallel right. Well, okay, so, so basically the Gospels are a typological representation of the military campaign of, of Titus Flavius. And... Um, I, I had no idea about some kind of the Hebraic uh, technique of typology when I started my study. I, I just mm -hmm. um, tried to read 
closely Josephus and the Gospels, and it just sort of occurred to me that these certain events just seemed strangely parallel, and then I had this kind of aha moment where I saw the sequence. But after that, um, I started, you know, to look for, well, what exactly is the genre that I'm dealing with? And as it turns out, there's just an obvious and well-known primer of the, of the typologic system that extends throughout the entire Gospels. And it's right at the beginning, the very first page of the Gospels. And it's just uh, contained in the, um, uh, in the uh, pre-ministry that Matthew describes. Okay, so in that story, um, Joseph has a dream, he leaves, um, he, he goes from uh, um, Judea to Egypt. Um, you know, you have the, the slaughtering of the innocents, you know, um, and then um, when he's there, someone comes up to him and he says, you know, uh, they who thought, sought the child's life are dead. So then he goes back to, um, he goes back to uh, Judea, uh, you have a baptism. Now, at this point, um, Matthew describes Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days, right? And then you have the three temptations. Jesus is tempted, you know, he says, you know, you do not tempt by bread, you don't tempt God. And um, so, well, where does that story come from? Well, it's typology. It's completely developed out of the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, you have Joseph, the dreamer of dreams. He's in Judea. He goes down to, um, uh, to Egypt. If you start you know, working through the, the storyline, you'll see now you have the slaughter of innocents. It's not Herod, but it's Pharaoh. You have the slaughter of the innocent children. And then someone comes up to Moses and he says, they are dead. They who sought the child's life are dead. Um, now you, you return, you, you have a geographical movement back from Egypt, back to Judea, and you have the, the baptism of the Israelites. Um, you know, they pass through the Red Sea. Um, and, and then you, they go into the wilderness, not for 40 days, but for 40 years. You see, typology is not verbatimism. You just have enough information that are parallel so you can see the relationship between the stories. But then you have the three temptations um, by God from the Israelites, and they use the exact quotes. They actually, you know, the, the uh, statement that Jesus makes are actually quotations. They're the exact words from the Old Testament. And so you have, like, it's all pretty straightforward. In particular, notice that the geography, the traveling back and forth is exactly the same sequence, right? But you have this one, like people say, well, what about this baptism? This doesn't look just right. You know, like Jesus, he's a single guy, he's dunked in the water where the Israelites, they pass through the Red Sea. How is that a baptism? Well, to make sure that it's understood that Jesus is representing the event that the uh, Israelites go through, you have a verbatim line. You know, it, it, um, uh, the, the author says, um, out of Egypt, I called my son. And this was the statement that God made to the Israelites, you see, mm -hmm. um, that that ends up in the story about Jesus. So that shows you that, wait a second, this is basically it's it's the the baptism of Jesus is is a typology. It's related to this 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 uh, going through the water that the, uh, the Israelites do. So so that system, you have a system where you have parallel locations, you have parallel names like Joseph, right? You have parallel concepts, okay, um, you know, going into the wilderness, uh, you know, the temptations. Um, 
and you have the, it's all occurring in the same sequence, right? Mm. So you lay the stories. Okay, so it's a very straightforward um, way to recognize where the story came from in the Gospels. The author developed it out of the Old Testament. Now, if you go forward from the fishing for men in the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus gets his disciples together and he says, don't be afraid, we're going to fish for men. If you then just start at that point, which is exactly at the end of that first um, system, and then go forward, now you're just linking into Josephus. It's exactly the same system. Parallel wow. names, parallel physical locations, parallel concept, all occurring in exactly the same sequence. So the author doesn't switch genres. He just goes into the future with Jesus instead of you know looking back to the past. Yeah, that's interesting. And then there's also the the naming of the names, the recurring names. I thought that was a pretty big uh, deal that you kind of came across that. I mean, you know, it seemed to me like the whole thing actually was that the you, you read the Gospels. If you read them all separately, the stories are different. They don't necessarily make sense. You talk about learning how to read these intertextually. So you're combining you know, you're looking at it as one story, then comparing it to the Josephus story, then you can start to really see these parallels, but then everything falls into place. Like, oh, now it's starting to make sense. Can you talk a little bit about the recurring names, like the recurring names of Mary, the recurring names uh, and like John and Simon, who were leaders of the Jewish rebellion, who then show up in the gospel, Right, right. Uh, right. Well, you know, well, the name well, Judas? Yeah, once you've got it, worked out, you can see that the disciples are also um, cutouts. They're, you know, like particularly the leaders, John and Simon. And so um, uh, John and Simon are basically representations of the military leader. These are the two um, leadership apostles of, of Jesus Christ, um, but they're also the leaders of the Messianic movement in Josephus. And you know, once you once you have the, the storyline dialed in so you can just go forward, you can come to the end of the Gospels, uh, you know, John 23, is it 21? Um, and you can see that uh, Jesus, he, you know, he, he gets the two disciples and he goes, Simon, he calls him Peter because he has a nickname for him. And that's part of the, the magic is they change the name. So it's a little bit harder to see the, the parallelism. But, you know, he goes, look, Simon, um, when you're old, you're going to get taken where you don't want to go, um, and uh, you're going to be bound, and then you're going to be given a death to glorify God. And Simon goes, okay, well, what about this guy? And he says, the author of the Gospel of John. So he's John, and he goes, well, uh, he's, you know, he says, it's nothing to you if he remains till I get back. Don't worry about this. So then at the end of the Roman-Jewish War, you're following along with these you know, the, who, once you have identified who the characters are, now at the end of the Jewish war, um, this is exactly what happens. Um, Simon gets bound, he gets taken where he doesn't want to go, which is Rome, and he's given a, um, a, a death in, in, um, you know, in the Roman city, basically as a way to honor the Roman god um, uh, Vespasian. And the, uh, the character John, uh, the disciple John, he, he is given life imprisonment. So, you know, this is the, the kind of explanatory power that, uh, you know, that occurs once you've kind of dialed in the two stories, because, you know, no one had a clue as to why Jesus would make these kinds of predictions. I mean, why would he spare John and condemn Simon? It just seemed arbitrary. There's no real reason for this. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the literature, there's, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of pages that people would write these conjectures and speculations and all this kind of weird stuff about, well, was this or that? Well, how about it's just that he's uh, the author is aware of the ha what happened to Simon and John at the end of the Roman Jewish War. And, you know, here's the thing is you've got all of these events from the Roman Jewish War in the Gospels, right? You've, you know that when Jesus predicts the encircling of, of Jerusalem with the wall, he's talking about the Roman Jewish War. When he's talking about the raising of the temple, he's talking about the Roman Jewish War. When he's talking about the crushing of the Galileans' towns, man, it's the Roman Jewish War. This is the only time these three things ever happened, Roman Jewish War. So that's what he's mm -hmm. talking about. So now when you come to this, well, okay, he, he's condemning Simon and sparing John, it's not some kind of leap of interpretive fantasy to say, well, it's just another event from the Roman Jewish War. You see, this is what it's kind of um, almost it's, it's like the the stuff I show is so obvious once you have it, you know, just have this kind of perspective that mm -hmm. the question is, is why isn't this why hasn't this always been the way people have understood it? It just doesn't mean <laughs> right. it, makes that, it just makes no sense because, look, um. You know, I'm sorry, it's the same story, and here's all the events are the same events. So, and then it's like, it's like you come to um, the crucifixion scene, you know, and Jesus has this crucifixion scene where he's, there's these three guys, and Jesus gets taken down, and by Joseph of Arimathea, and then he survives, right? Okay, mm -hmm. so, so now, if you go to the internet, you, you can Google, like, Joseph, Joseph Barmathias, um, you know, takes the, the, you know, the relationship between that, you know, and, and Jesus' story. In other words, I showed that there is this parallel where Joseph Barmathias, you know, as opposed to Joseph Arimathea, remember, it's typology, it's never verbatim, there's always like one or two letters different, you know, but it's exactly right. the same word. And he goes, so, so in, in the Josephus story, he sees three guys and, you know, that are uh, being crucified. He goes to Titus, just like Joseph Arimathea went to Pontius Pilate. And he goes, Titus, you know, you're the Roman commander. Can I take these guys down from the cross? And he goes, sure. So they take him down and he miraculously survives. Now, this is like almost ludicrous, right? It's just absolutely ludicrous that that people would not think that in a story that has all these other events about the Roman from the Roman Jewish War, that this story would not be the basis for the gospel story because the name of the guy who takes him down from the cross is literally, you know, out of like 18 Greek characters, there's only two that are different. So it's just, it's got to be the same guy. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly when once you place it in the sequence, you go, well, this is where the crucifixion story is going to be. And this is what I was going to say is that so now it's a big deal on the internet. That one little parallel is kind of like even now in divinity schools, I get emails and people asking me to explain this or that about it, you know? And like one thing they always go, they go, well, no one had ever seen this. How did you see it? And I always go, guys, I saw it because I knew where to look. <laughs> yeah. It's not like I'm some kind of like readership genius or something. <laughs> I just, I have the book. And I got the story of the crucifixion, and I look over here, and I go, okay, well, this is obviously the same story. So it's just, you know, I make light of it um, because, I, you know, I'm always in these, like, deep scholastic skirmishes with other scholars. But frankly, I hate to say it. I mean, I do, but it's really, it's just once you get into the rhythm thing, it's just obvious. And it's, 
It's uh-huh. almost, I mean, it's sad because so many people have bought into the story, you know, over 2,000 years. It's very sad. All these people whose lives have been diminished because they had a fate that was based on something that's obviously untrue. But on the other hand, I'm hoping, you know, that now that the information is out over time, that we can just be free of this myth. And uh, hopefully, um, you know, uh, the lesson of uh, oligarchic propaganda uh, mm-hmm. will sink in and then we be- there become a more effective democracy because we'll have this information. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I had a teacher in, you just reminded me, I had a teacher in college that taught Socrates more like he was telling a a joke, not that he wasn't actually engaging in this logical argument with his interlocutors, but that he was really kind of teasing them because, uh, you know, they, they were so arrogant as to think that their logic really was that powerful at all. And it reminded me of that because as I was, you know, I spent some time with this teacher uh, studying Socrates. And once you got the joke, then it became really obvious. And I think that's just what happened to you is that you got the joke here. I mean, the Romans were kind of joking when they put out on one level. So, I mean, that's the other thing about it is that then there's multiple levels here. I mean, the the con- the construction of the whole thing is genius. It really is. That, Absolutely. That... It's an incredible literary accomplishment. And they meant it to be that. In other mm-hmm. words, they were definitely, it was a vanity piece for sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but there is like a very um, witty, very witty, but vicious kind of humor that runs through the whole thing. It's kind of like an Abbott and Costello uh, right. punchline stuff. I mean, it's like Jesus sort of plays a straight man where... Um, and you see, to, to really get the humor, you've got to go and see, you know, like the how the typology what, what, that, the go- that the Flavians are creating with the Gospels, what they're actually mocking. They're mocking the kind of uh, typologic prophecies that was in, were inspiring the Jews to rebel that you can see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, things like the Habakkuk Pesher. Now, you know, it's so what they do the Messianic movement in the first century, they would they would look in their ancient texts and then they would try to see parallels to the present day. And then that would give them an understanding about when the Messiah was going to show up or when some kind of military mm-hmm. victory was possible. They were looking for patterns, right? When, when um, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, they talk about in the beginning there is logos, right? The logos, you know, this is the, the word just gets massively misunderstood. It, it really comes from Philo. It's the, the Flavian understanding of the term. And he's talking about the divine pattern. This is what the logic is. It's divine logic. So, so that this was what the, the, the Jewish um, kind of typology was looking for, but failed, right? They got crushed. Whereas the Gospels is the manifestation. In other words, when Jesus makes these predictions and says God is going to do all these bad things and all this stuff is going to come to you, and then his life is a virtual, um, you know, based upon the pattern of the military campaign, this is Logos, you see. Right, the, lo- right. the Logos is the relationship between Jesus and the, and the, the military campaign. And, and the idea is, is that always existed. The Roman, the divinity of Rome is like eternal it goes back in times and forwards, and the logos is basically um, just a word to describe that. 
Yeah, I mean, you think about the concepts like we are the light of Rome or, you know, being a part of the Roman Empire was this great thing. And the Roman, I mean, the Caesars took this very seriously, that they this was culture. You know, we, we have dominated these other cultures and our I think, as you said, our logos is superior Our yeah. you know, and it's and it's and it's not just do I think logically, but it's also our place in history as the superior culture that is now the empire. You, you know what I exactly mean? Exactly right. And see, this was a religious position, mm-hmm. um, or at least that's how they sold it, uh, you know, was that they would, they would, they had this thing called the imperial cult, which basically worshiped the Caesars as divine. Um, it was a massive bureaucracy. It was the largest um, government apparatus in the empire. Um, if you go to Ephesus uh, and look at like the temple that uh, Domitian uh, Vespasian's younger son created, I mean, you know, you've got his hand is like uh, 10 feet high, you know, I mean, it's just the, they're just these representations of their divinity um, are everywhere. Um, and that they thought was good governance. They just thought that the more they could sell themselves as divine, the easier it was going to be for the people to obey them. And then they would argue that this will make for a better world because you see, once you have the logos in place and everyone is obedient, um, there's no more rebellions and then we'll be much better off. Yeah. So that was how they, that was, that was what I think they actually believed, but that's certainly what they tried to sell to their, their subjects. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting then when you hear Jesus saying things like repent and you will find the kingdom of heaven. What what he's saying is, you know, stop fighting the Romans and yeah. become part of Rome. And this is sure. the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. Just stop. Yeah. And, uh, and, that, and, and that also worked in the feudal system, you know, to the serf. They <laughs> they would, you know, people couldn't even read, but they would go to church and this stuff would get read to them. And then they the idea is you have a worker's paradise once you die uh, if you obey the magistrate. You know, I wanted to bring up with you, and since you just said those words, the worker's paradise, I was wondering if you've made any kind of, if you've thought about connecting that with, like, say, you know, Marxism or cultural Marxism or this movement that's happening today as as created. I know that the work that you and Jan have done have been more about the idea of modern primitivism and kind of bringing this back. And I definitely want to talk about that. We've got about 15 or 20 minutes left, so we can maybe get into this now, but I was wondering if you thought, you know, that worker's paradise notion, if there was any connection between Christianity and Marxism in this kind of way. hundred percent. I mean, um, yeah. you know, Mar- Marxism is just, uh, a, 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 you know, a Christianity minus, um, you know, Roman bureaucracy and, and the God it's, it's, um, you know, it was just another worker's paradise. I actually uh, did an interview on REN Network, uh, Russian TV network, and I said, "Look, um, interesting." You know, uh, I said, "I, I just want to." I told the, you know, it was, it was a strange thing because they had a crew here, and but there was a guy in Moscow on Skype, and he was, you know, kind of fiddling, and it was hard to kind of, you know, make myself clear through all that. But I, I said, "Look, I really want to say something." I said, "Look, what's so important?" The one thing I really want to get on the record here is that um, the Russian people were sold a bill of goods with Marxism. It wasn't a bad economic system. It was a method to create political control. That's Mm -hmm. all it was. And if there's any vestige of of like faith in that kind of, you know, system, um, you have to lose it because basically it was just a... um, of a, a piece of sophistry, just like Christianity is. It's just a, something to fool you 
so that you give up political control. And once you do that, you better be sure a genocide is going to follow because the people that are that are using this, uh, you know, to get you to give up political control, they definitely have a different kind of, you know, population in mind in the long run. And so, um, you know, that was that was uh, I, I wanted to be sure that kind of the the anti-Christianity thing that they wanted to talk about um, didn't overshadow the fact that I think there's a, a real practical meaning toward the people today that are still suffering, you know, from from the from the effects of the people that sold them Marxism and Bolsheviks just yeah. so they could slaughter them, you know, years later. Well, I think I just think it's amazing, too, that so many people, because Marxism is what you and I perceive as the secular version of Christianity, so many people see Marxism as the antidote to patriarchy right now. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm having conversations. I mean, I live in Northern yeah. California, and, and so there's a, a lot of people that are attracted to this kind of cultural Marxism, and I'm, and they're doing it because they think that they're fighting for, you know, people's people's rights and equality and, and, you know, fight the, fight the power, fight the patriarchy. Uh, and I'm just saying, God, you know, this is uh, what, this is the new boss, same as the old boss, right? I mean, let's, let's get sure. real about this. This is a, this is just a secular version of the same patriarchal philosophy that was used as a psyop against the people 2000 years ago. So, you know, what's, what's the deal? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, if you trace, um, Marxism into, um, what's called cultural Marxism. If you go from, you know, the Marxists that were, um, you know, basically setting up the common turn, you know, at the, during World War I, um, and re they realized, uh, Gregory Luchas, you know, was one of the premier intellectuals. Uh, they said, you know, this Marxist inevitability of the proletariat revolution doesn't look like it's gonna come about, or at least it's really gonna be a hassle to bring about. We need another approach. And so they switched gears and they decided to take the mar long march through culture. So they wanted to basically to shatter cultural institutions, shatter mm -hmm. uh, basically just sort of European Christian culture. Um, but you see, you have to remember that that they are not altruists. They, they are individuals that want power for the same reasons that the Caesars wanted power. They I, want. Absolutely. Rule. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's the thing is that. Whenever someone comes to you, and just because of our history, I think this is a clear, uh, a good habit to have. But when someone comes to you and say, look, I've got a worker's paradise down the road. You just have to give up political power to me right now. Right. <laughs> you know, when that happens, you just tell them to go to hell and, and <laughs> say, I'm sorry, but just because of the fact that we've been slaughtered, you know, like people talk about the 20th century the 20th century was basically the Holocaust of, uh, of European um, civilization. I mean, there was, you know, mm -hmm. I, one of the studies I try to do is try to figure out, well, how many Europeans died from war and war-related events in the 20th century? You can't even get within like 20 million people. I mean, the yeah. difference, I mean, that's how many there were slaughtered. It is just vast. Um, there's a rounding error, you know, it's like 5 million people. And you see, right. my point is, look, um, we we just have to shift gears in terms of the scrutiny we have and the relationship we have to the politicians, because this has been such a catastrophic failure. I mean, just, you know, the history of it doesn't get mentioned a lot. But when you're looking at over 200 million people, 
and the mm-hmm. last 120 years being killed. I mean, this is a real problem. And so we really need to develop a little more skepticism. We need to have basically some tools, some intellectual tools, so we have a more effective democracy. And, you know, the first thing is, is we just have to never believe the the so-called workers paradise that, that we, we will have eventually once we give up our political power. And so the thing is, is that the modern socialists, I mean, I personally I have no trouble with them. I think a lot of the ideas are good. Certainly I understand the, um, the concern they have about the development of, uh, you know, the one-tenth of one percent in the United States. I mean, obviously that system is on its way to, uh, uh, you know, basically an extermination of most of the population. So we have to try something. But I would just say that we should look into our own selves for, you know, kind of systems that will work. Uh, we can't really look into history. Nothing in history has anything to offer us. All of this stuff has been, um, you know, has been created for the for the gains of the oligarchs. Cultural Marxism wasn't right. created because it was going to make the people any better. Christianity wasn't created. It was going to help anybody. Um, you know, the Marxist revolution didn't really have anything in mind. The French revolution wasn't something that was going to take anybody to a better place. The civil war wasn't fought to, to free the slaves. I mean, look, these are just population culling processes. And and to make a more effective democracy, um, you know, it's, it's like I always, you know, like I get involved a lot in, in discussions about uh, the Middle East, you know, and, uh, you know, because mm-hmm. they're, they're, they, the book of Revelation, you know, seemingly has this... Uh, Middle East war, you know, that's going to bring back Jesus and people ask me for comments. And I go, well, look, I said, in terms of politics, the first thing I look for in a politician is someone that wants to postpone the apocalypse. You see, the idea that they're embracing it is like, no, I'm sorry, not my guy. I'm looking, you know, so, you know, right. I mean, this is what I'm looking for. So I mean, like when Trump gets on there and he talks about, you know, we've got to go and and kill terrorists. I mean, I'm sorry. Um, You know, this is just too, um, uh, it it is just without any kind of real context that I can understand. And it just looks to me like it's just another way to slaughter, um, you know, populations that the oligarchs don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm just very... um, uh, desirous of a higher quality of democracy, you know, where where the citizens get to push in a little bit more than we have so that, you know, we can have some control. I mean, we wanted Obama because he was going to end the wars. We, Trump was talking about how, you know, the wars were too expensive and yet the wars never stop, you know. So yeah. I'm, just, I'm looking for something else. And um, I'm, I'm just very, uh, you know, want, I want to see the, uh, the people, <laughs> you know, to, to use an expression, you know, push forward. Right. What do you see is going on now then? I mean, I think because there's so many parallels between the fascists and the communists fighting each other. And I am just I mean, I'm just astounded. I feel like this has almost almost come out of nowhere. And I definitely feel like there's some kind of grand manipulation going on, like once again, or, you know, maybe it's just never stopped. I mean, it seems like there is this oligarch class. They yeah. learned from the Roman Caesars. These guys are the guys exactly. that have been studying how the Romans did it 2000 years ago, and they're applying it today. And, and so, you know, I guess we've got maybe about, well, we've got about 10 minutes left, but I mean, we can really kind of get into this. So how y- you talk about in Caesar's Messiah, like the satire is like, 
a cruel joke that the upper class or the sophisticated class are the ones in the know. You know, they're the ones that are educated and they know about the joke. And so they're reading the New Testament and they're reading, you know, the, the wars against the Jews and they're laughing all the way to the bank because yeah. this, they know this is the tool that they're using to co-opt Judaism, to co-opt this messianic form of Judaism that was such a thorn in their side and then to to soften it and turn it into a tool or a weapon that they can use but they're peddling it to this slave class that doesn't know what the heck's going on you know that they're being that it's a psychological operation basically and exactly. I really you know I see the same thing happening today the kind of manipulation of the social engineering that's going on and the people really aren't, they're just, I don't know how, how to solve the problem even. I mean, how, you know, I'm trying to do this podcast, I guess, you know, you're writing yeah. your books. Well, and this thing, Doug, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've like caught a couple of the ones you've done. I think they're absolutely excellent and you oh, are you. to be commended, sir. And I just, you know, thank whatever you. I can do support, let me know. But I mean, basically the oligarchs, um, they have this one trick, uh, which it just works every time. And that is they control the media. Mm -hmm, I mean, right. and therefore, our understanding of history is unfortunately just controlled so that we end up always hurting ourselves. We don't we never get the fact that, you know, uh, like what when they like I, I would tell people about like, um, you know, Hillary and uh, and Trump. I go, look, they're obviously controlled by the same group. You yeah, see? right. I mean, I mean, look, if you're an oligarch. You, you can't have any power if you just control one political party. This is absurd. You have to control both parties. And I say mm -hmm. the reason I said, if you look at Hillary and Trump, they were developed, their personalities were developed because they create hatred in a massive hatred from the people who don't like them. You see, this, Absolutely. Is what, this creates the impression that there's democracy because you hate Hillary or you hate Donald. You know, right. Hillary is the cultural Marxist librarian from outer space. Donald is, the, <laughs> you know, pussy grabbing billionaire white racist. So yeah. you hate them. And because you hate them, then you have passion. But you see, in a good puppet show, the drama is what keeps you from seeing the strings. You see, yeah. but yeah. believe me, they are the same. It's the same party. The, these issues, you know, feminism, same sex bathrooms. I mean, all of this stuff is nonsense. There's two issues. There's war and money. This yeah. is what the oligarchs have, you know, control over. And and what they do is they give us fake histories. Christianity is a fake history. The stuff that the the Marxists were were selling is fake. And um, you know, I mean, like, like I, you probably can't see this, but this is like one of my favorite fake tools. This is a note from the. Um, Right. Uh, the, this is a note from the interim government that uh, led to the collapse of Russia. Okay, so that, the czar collapses, but there was an interim period, right? Uh-huh. And in the middle of the note, this is 1917, they indented, you can barely see it. I'm not sure you're going to be able to make it out, but you may be able to. There is a swastika in the middle of it. Oh, wow. And it's been rotated to the, you know, perfect Masonic 45 degree angles. It's it's right facing. It's it's yeah. rotated in the right way. Um, and this is supposedly the workers paradise Bolsheviks, right? Yeah. This is, OK, so the thing is, the symbols that that they understand, right, and control um they have the they understand the truth that it, it's a, a way of like, I guess it's a kind of humor they have. But. 
when you look at these characters that develop intense hatred or heroism or, you know, feminine, this, I mean, I, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. We don't control our history. We don't control our media. You know, um, um, I, I like, I don't know if you ever heard of Ewan Cameron, but he mm. was the, he was the most insane MK ultra, um, psychiatrist that there was. Okay. He was the one who would take women. He would, um, he would put them into chemical comas for 30 days and give them electroshock. And then he would wake them up and give them more electroshock to what's called psychic driving. So they couldn't remember their own children. And wow. then he would, then he would, and he would try to create a brand new soul, a brand new personality, right? He did this hundreds of times. There were deaths, fatalities. He got caught. The Canadian government um, basically uh, helped organize a lawsuit where the CA have confessed and they go, oh yeah, you know, we were worried about this or that. And okay, this happened. <laughs> but okay, so this guy is completely insane. He has the moral perspective of a lizard. But you see, here's this is the thing. When when World War II ended, they needed someone to come in and create a narrative about the German people, right? Who's going to be the psychologist they're going to get to come in and write the history of like, and, and this, it was Ewan Cameron. This is the guy. Wow. They bring him in and he goes, yeah, he goes, the German people are completely nuts and they've got to be under like strict psychological control for like right. generations. But you see, this was, this was when he was the head of the World Psychiatric Organization. This was before the MK Ultra stuff comes out. Yeah. So this is, this is the thing is that... Um, I just wanted to, you know, when you get in, once you start seeing, well, Christianity is a fake history, this whole thing about Jesus, he's like in our mind, you know, he's walking around, you know, we see him and this, that, you know, we're just very, humans are easy to program, easy to code. And if you have control over the media, and so forget about history, um, worry about yourselves, your family, the connections, the people you have, try to develop thinking skills, you know, so that. Mm -hmm. Clever arguments like this don't knock you off and you end up, you know, voting for Donald or Hillary, you know. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it's just these people are ludicrous. They are I, not real humans. I can't believe that people vote Republican or Democrat at <laughs> all anymore. I just can't believe it. It's like, yeah. you know, if you want to participate in the vote third party or find, you know, but you got to know at this point, I mean, the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders. Oh, my God. You know, stop. Yeah. And and the Republicans did it to Ron Paul four years ago. Almost exactly the same. The media wasn't mentioning him. He was having yeah. 20,000 people yeah. at his rallies. They well, we need, I, I think the proof is there. They we stole need to create it from new him. candidates. We need a new political party. I mean, what I tell people is I say, look, you know, um, um, what we need are coffee tables. Don't, don't, no violent protests. They, they will know how to deal with that. What they cannot deal with would be 50,000 coffee tables at every farmer's market and outside the malls. And it's yeah. just a little, you know, two guys just saying, hey, look, um, you know, First Amendment, we're, we're just here to try to talk to the people on the street. And like, we've got some information here about how one crazed oligarchic nightmare controls both political parties and they're crushing all of humanity right, right here's right. here's what we have to say you know we just want you to remember that when you go when you think about this political system yeah just remember that it's just controlled tip to stern by the same little group of insane oligarchs so if you have that information and that gets out then people can go well you know what maybe we we should look at a new political party you know 
Maybe when when uh, you know you you read about well the the DNC is like you know circumventing uh, Sanders because they want to promote their got their gal, um, you know we just say okay we're not going to play in that game anymore. We can't win that game. We don't own that system. The idea of having any alliance you know or enthusiasm for Republicans or Democrats, this is self defeating. We need a yeah. new party, brother. Well, I can't believe it. I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. The divide and conquer, the amount of hatred they've been able to generate. I mean, I am by far, I, I am no Trump fan, uh, you know, um, but I can't believe the stuff I'm hearing from people like what? Uh, I mean, I don't you know why they just hate him. They hate him more than they hated Bush. Uh, and the, you the, know, more Bush they, the more was a they Nazi, hate, the more <laughs> they are the victims of the mind control, you know? Yeah, right. And Absolutely. that's the saddest thing to see is that they have just been so confused that um, the they the character they have created has been effective. And you now believe what you're seeing is a real human in action and you are outraged. You know, your sensibilities are being challenged. Mm -hmm. Look, just go back to my statement. If you're an oligarch, you cannot have any power by controlling one party. You've got to control both. And. Remember, I remember when Obama came to office and people were saying, oh, my God, this is terrific. He has an Arabic sounding name. He's half black. He's going to like end these crazy wars and we're going to see the bankers brought to heel. Yeah, because he's, he's a man of the people. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, I said, no, I don't think so. I think if you look into his mother's background, you're just going to find nothing but the CIA and John Dewey and the same oligarchic system. I, I said, this is this guy. It just I, I said, I said, he just stinks. This is going to be horrible. And of course, now, you know, you can see, well, the wars never stop. The bankers mm -hmm. never stop stealing. And and, you know, the middle class is getting more and more crushed. There's there's more political impotence for, for all of us. The, the NSA, the snooping technology keeps expanding. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, the citizens, you know, we just need a better democracy. We, we've got to find a way to break the grip that the oligarchs have over what we call politics. We have to start by, by by just saying, you know, I just am not going to be outraged at Trump or at Hillary. These mm -hmm. are puppets. They're they're there to make us emotional, right? Right. Get that. Forget right. that. Grab a coffee table. Get get some understanding of the oligarchic system of how one group controls both sides. Get to the get to the farmers markets. Get to the um, you know, the, the malls and just say, here, I'm, I'm just here, First Amendment, and I want to talk, you know, and, and try to develop because, you know, we have tools now because we have the social media, which, of course, they have developed to control us, mm -hmm. but we can flip on its back and use to organize ourselves. We could create a large political party very quickly. I know they'll try to infiltrate. I know there's a million things that can go wrong, but man, we got to try something. And this would be something I would recommend is let's just Use the media and the way you're doing. Yeah. You know, this is the way. It's just to try to organize it. Always organize. Always develop more connections, more ways of expanding to more and more people. And be bold, for mm -hmm. God's sakes. No time for timidity. we got yeah. to try something now because with the technologic snooping capacities, they're basically going to be able to you know, use the iPhone to reach into our brains pretty soon and start controlling our thinking. So. I, 
I have found the most difficult thing is this left-right paradigm. I mean, this divide yeah. and conquer strategy because people want to choose a side and they have they want to hate and they want to fight. I mean, I think this what we're seeing in Charlottesville right now. Everybody just wants to fight, you know, and it's you know trying to take a step back and say, "Hey, you know, th they're manipulating all of us with this stuff. Let's let's try something <laughs> exactly. completely different, you right. know, and not exactly. get, well, the Charlottesville get together." It was it was pathetic. I mean, if you see the photograph they released of the car going into the crowd, um, you'll see like a couple of guys cartwheeling in the air. It looks photoshopped to me. But mm. one thing that just cracked me up was the license plate on the car. It's one 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 one. Yeah. <laughs> see, this is their nine one one. I mean, they just have these these number things because uh, the tree of right. life is is a very you know key thing in their uh, in their theology so they mm -hmm. they love number puzzles and stuff and they they you know they 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 it's predictive programming you know where they they'll have an event but then they'll use numbers to say well look hey it's god's work right it's logos we you know it just happened right. on this day by accident you know it's like but it's just it's just how they want to do it um we just ignore all that stuff, you know, forget it. We, we you know, we, we just have to work among ourselves to create a, uh, a political party that has connections that, that that to ourselves, that has really clearly defined goals. I mean, no war, um, reduce the military budget, reduce the snooping, um, you know, have an expansion of the of the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment, you know, no more groping in the airports, that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. We just have to stop. We have to start moving away from being uh, slaves in a technological box back to where we have, you know, rights of citizens and political power. Well, I can't agree with you more, Joe. We're looking at uh, a little bit over an hour here, so we better wrap it up. I think we could probably keep talking for hours. Yeah, and I know. Hours. Well, I, I, mean... hope we, I hope we do, Doug. I hope we talk. You know, anytime you want to talk, just just give me a give me a call up because uh, it's okay. it's just really important, you know that. Um, you know, that, that, we, that we start to organize, connect with each other. I mean, the issues, I, I mean, there's a lot of different disagreements, obviously. People are so different. But mm -hmm. we can rally, I think, around the idea that we don't want to be slaves. Right. So, so let's 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 just keep yeah, that. Yeah, let's in do mind. that. I know. Yeah. Is it that hard to get together yeah. when when yeah. this is what's at stake? You know, I mean, black, white, gay, whatever. It's like, come on, let's just you know. I know. They say, this is what I, I wish I could have talked. I wish I. I mean, I don't know to what extent, like in Charlottesville, you know, the the people there are being manipulated. But I would love to talk to. You know, if there were actually Ku Klux Klan guy and the Antifa, you know, the the uh, the left wing guys, and go, and I would have just said, guys, look, I know it's a hard thing to grasp, but you're being manipulated. Yeah, you're. You, this is a gladiatorial pit, and you right. are the gladiators. Yeah, right. bread and circus, bread this and circus, is bread and circuses, right? And you are the you are the entertainment. You know, yeah, and and just try to as best we can work with these people to see that. Let's not fight among ourselves, right? We have got a real problem right yeah. now. And so let's try to cooperate. Yeah, it's so important. Well, I really want to thank you for your work. I mean, what Caesar's Messiah does is it, it connects this whole thing back for a, a 2,000 years. You know, there's a lineage of this kind of behavior by the upper class, by the elite class. It really is a cosmic joke that they're playing on all the rest of us. And the sooner that we wake up to what's going on, you know, I think this the easier it'll be to start working together, doing what you're talking about, cooperating, yep. getting beyond this this need to fight each other over, you know, 
this difference or that difference and, and talking so often about these red herring issues that aren't even real issues. I mean, yeah. I think I think everybody's yeah. on board. Well, like you say, let's just not be slaves anymore. How's yeah. that? You know, how about ending these never ending wars? I mean, everybody agrees with these basic principles. So, you know, let's yeah, just I mean, 80 percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. You've got to have uh, both married people working like full time. No one can have a kid. Look, in 1950, before all this technologic advance, you know, there was enough wealth in the country that a, a guy could have a regular job and could have a house with a wife who would stay at home and watch the kids. Um, yeah. What, and everybody's going to college and everybody what, has health care. Right. What happened? You know? Right. So so that's the kind of stuff you got to remember is just this big picture stuff is that, you know, let's um, let's not go down this path any further. Let's try to turn it around and uh, have a more, I mean, I hate to be like a cheerleader, but I, and I do feel strongly about this and, and, uh, and hope that, um, you know, whatever, whatever value my work has, that, that uh, it, it is focused in this area that, you know, mm -hmm. it's like people realize that, look, they give us these fake stories, fake histories, and then they manipulate us. So let's, let's just be skeptical, use our reason, keep our senses engaged and, uh, and don't trust anyone but ourselves, you know, try to make a better world. Yeah, I hear you. Do you want to let people know where they can get in touch with you and yeah, find yeah, out I mean, more about uh, your work? Uh, open guy. I mean, uh, Caesarsmessiah.com is uh, where you can buy the books. I have a book on Shakespeare, which shows it's the same part of the same deal. Mm -hmm. um, Caesar's Messiah is available there. And I, I, uh, my, you can ask questions. I take emails. Um, I try to answer like at least like 100 a day. Uh, um, Joe Atwell at gmail.com. Just send any questions or criticism, anything, you know, and, uh, um, you know, whatever I can do to help, just let me know. <laughs> awesome, Joe. Thanks. And uh, I just want to let everybody know that you've been listening to The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. You can help me out by becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash The Shift. Uh, find out more on the Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Uh, join me on Twitter at D McKenty or find out more about everything that's going on. Uh, over here at www.theshiftnow.com. And thank you so much, Joe, for being a part of the program. And I can't wait to hear more about what's going on. We'll talk hey, again in the you, future. thank you, brother. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Talk to you a soon. Absolutely. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.